Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I was blessed by this. We're going to be taking a look at a guy by the name of John the Baptist as we're going to look at Matthew 11. I'm blessed by this man, especially, you know, I, I often say this, but if you get nothing out of the service, it's probably because the message was intended for me. And uh, I'm just going to selfishly share with myself. Um, and you're welcome to be a part of it. Suffice it to say for my wife and I, the last two weeks uh, have been really tough. Um, you know, you look on a uh, on the chart for things that induce uh, a short lifespan stress factors, like eight of the 10 on the list, we've gone through this week. And um, we've been under the pile. Uh, our anniversary was the 21st. And for our anniversary, Michelle got the gnarliest looking sty on her eye. Super attractive. Um, it looked like she'd gone a couple rounds with Apollo Creed. And just like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. And oh, it, was, it was bad. It was just like moving, you know, it was, it was off. Sorry, babe. Um, but that was our anniversary night. And, and, and it culminated. The whole day was intense. And uh, we finally had a chance to sit down for dinner and, and just to reflect and, and being under that pile and all the intensity and all the things happening. And I have to tell you that there was an enormous breakthrough uh, yesterday that was phenomenal. And I just realized, you know, it was, it was Reagan who told the story. And it was, it's a really cute story. And if you've heard it, bear with me. But it's about the, the two children they did a sociological study on. One was an eternal optimist. The other was an eternal pessimist. They took the pessimistic child and they put him in a room filled with brand new toys. And then they put the optimist child in a room with a big pile of manure. And they let them stay in the room and they came back to see, uh, evaluate them after an hour. And the pessimist was in the room filled with brand new toys in the corner crying. And they said, what's wrong? You're in a room filled with new toys. Why didn't you play with them? He says, I was afraid I'd break them, you know. And then the optimist child, they, they go into the room where there's a pile of manure and the kid is covered in manure. There's manure everywhere. He's digging in. He's got a big smile on his face. And they go, why are you so happy? And he said, well, with this much manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and I, I think what the Lord showed us, my wife and I, and I want to relate to you, especially through the passage, that life is hard. It really is. And you got to keep digging because there's a pony in there. And we found the pony this week. And, and there are days where you wonder if it's just a room filled with manure, but there's a pony in there. And, you know, you give thanks in all things for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I was talking with a friend of mine and how the Lord ministers deeply and how even in the most painful of moments in your life, God uses it to really grab your attention. And you'll think this a bit strange, but to me, it ministered to my heart. Uh, my friend grew up in a, a broken home. His dad left when he was real young, left his mama and he and his brother and took off with a beauty queen um, and moved to Louisiana. My friend stayed in Oklahoma. And um, his daddy remarried and then had two children. So my friend had a stepbrother and a stepsister. And my friend's dad went on to be the largest car dealer in Louisiana in Chevy Hall of Fame and was worth millions, tens of millions of dollars. And really never said to, to my friend, this man never said to my friend that he was proud of him as a father. He never said that he loved him. And, and my friend was recounting an incident with his dad when he was a teenager. 
And his dad threw him some keys to a Corvette and he said, you can drive this. And if you win the state championships in tennis, you get to keep the car. My friend was moved. His daddy never went to any of the tennis tournaments, never watched him play, never really invested in his life whatsoever. My friend made it to the corner finals, quarterfinals for the state championships loss. He came home. His dad said, did you win? He said, no. He said, throw the keys on the counter. Cold. And uh, matter of fact, when, when uh, my friend's dad got old and started to die, my friend loved on him. And all the pain and all the hurt, his, his younger brother died of, of drug-related issues, and the family was shattered because of what the father did. But my friend, who had dropped out of college and went into just a dark life, came to Christ, and his heart was to reconcile with his dad, and he pressed in. And on, on his father's deathbed, he led him to the Lord. He led him to the Lord. And, and that was the first time that my, my friend had heard his dad tell him he was proud of him and they loved him. His whole life went through that. And he died. And when the will was opened, the father left him nothing, not a dime, left it to his half-brother and his half-sister, didn't leave him anything. He wasn't bitter. And my friend ended up doing really well. And uh, a, a man in Louisiana called him who was a friend. And my friend always ends their conversation by saying, is there any, how can I help you? He always says, and he means it. And uh, the man said, well, I, I got a Corvette. I got to sell it. I, I had a business proposition. It fell through. I, I can't afford this car. I got to get rid of it. And uh, he said, I don't need a Corvette. And my friend's not extravagant at all. He said, I don't need a Corvette. He said, but if God wanted me to buy it, what would you sell it for? He said, well, I paid 72. I'd sell for 50. And this thing's a beast. And my friend said, okay, well, I'll, I'll see what the Lord says. And asked his wife. His wife said, no. <laughs> but then his wife fasted for two days. And after a two-day fast, she sensed that the Lord said, buy the car. And I'm thinking, I'd like an answer to prayer like that. <laughs> and tell my wife to start fasting. But it seems like a strange response that the Lord would say, buy that car. So he buys the car, alleviates this concern for the man, and he's sitting on a Corvette that he doesn't really need or want. And another friend had, had reflected about the this, this scriptural significance of, of what had occurred. And, and then it occurred to me as I, I shared with him, I said, you know, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven says that the saints can see us. And I said, your, your daddy came to the Lord at the end of his life. He said, yeah. I said, I, I can see him up in heaven looking at you. His heart's broken in a way that he just didn't father you and didn't care for you. And I can imagine him saying to our heavenly father, just saying, Papa, would you make it right with my boy? Because I, I, I had my son throw the keys on the counter. Would you give him the car? And I, the statement of that, I could see it just hit to the wound of my friend in his heart and the joy of seeing how God, through the answered prayer and uh, a strange, and all I'm telling you is, God has a way in the strangest of, of circumstances to tell you he's, he's got it covered. And right now you're going through something tough. No doubt, we all do. This is a fallen world. It's difficult. But the Lord wants you to know there's a pony there. Keep digging. And we're going to take a look at a man who understood what it was like to be under the pile, a man who understood what it was like to really doubt God and to question all the things of life and where is God when you need him most? And so 
Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 1 reads, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John. Now, by the way, um, in the original Greek, also the King James Version, not the New King James Version, but in the King James Version, the original Greek should read, uh, go and tell John again. Go and tell John again. Everyone say, go and tell John again. You just said again. Go and tell John again. You just do it by yourself. Okay, good. Go and tell John again the things which you hear and see. And he recites out of Isaiah uh, 35 and Isaiah 61. He says, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended. Everyone say, not offended. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, the disciples walk away. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's palaces or houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And in a sense, the spirit of Elijah. And then he says in verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then I want to read to you out of John chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. It's just verses 6 through 14. The scripture reads, There was a man sent from God. Everyone say, There was a man. man. Sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. And he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the study in the life of John the Baptist. And God, we see a man who is struggling and asking you, Lord, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Crisis of faith. And Lord, we've all found ourselves at that place. Father, would you minister to your children? Would you restore that relationship, open our heart and touch our lives. Lord, we so long to have your blessing and to hear you tell us you love us. And so Lord, please, I pray that you'd speak softly and tenderly to all who are present through the power of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. I was thinking about the the difficulty of life and how things get overwhelming and similar to what John the Baptist is facing. He's in prison, and I'll, I'll fill you in a little bit more of the details and where he finds himself. But I, I, I got a kick out of this joke 
The boss joined a group of his workers at coffee time and told a series of jokes he had heard recently. And everybody laughed loudly at the boss's jokes, everybody except for Mike. And when he noticed that he was, he was getting no reaction from Mike, the boss said, what's the matter, Mike? No sense of humor? Mike responded, my sense of humor is fine, boss, but I don't have to laugh because I'm quitting today. And as I hear that joke, I think of our own lives, that, that we, we step in and, and we, we become chameleons and we just kind of take on the color of those around us. And even though we're miserable, we put on a facade and we're giggling and we're laughing, but deep inside, we want out, we want to quit. And, and we're tired of it. And, and here, this guy, finally, the true colors comes out because I, I don't think your jokes are funny. I never have. I laughed only because I was under your employment and I had to, or I would have gotten fired, but I'm quitting today. And I just want you to know I'm done with you. And I thought it was a fitting joke because for all of us, we come to places like that where we find ourselves pretending something that isn't real. And, and we're stuck in this world where we're miserable and we'd, we'd like to just be candid and we'd like to process life. Life is hard. And, and I, th- I think oftentimes many of us probably want to quit. Job 14, verse 1, Job writes, man born of women is of few days and full of trouble. And, and Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It actually predates Genesis. And, and here you have Job who is just saying, life is full of trouble and man's days are few. I mean, this is a rough world. It's a fallen world. We have difficulty. We have depression. We have challenges. We have trials. We have heartache. We have burden. Life real simply can be described as tough. Life is tough. And it's, it's hard for us and it's hard on us. And it, and it, and it overwhelms us at times. And we feel like we're under that pile and it's easy to get discouraged and disheartened. And I think this is where, in a sense, John the Baptist finds himself. And when, when life is overwhelming and we're discouraged and disheartened, we tend to question things. And I find myself in that same place. I, I really question, you know, it was Mother Teresa who said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's a wonder you have any. And I have to say, as a, as a representative of God... And, and hermeneutics is what you study in seminary. And Hermes was a mythical creature that communicated between the gods and man. And hermeneutics is preaching. And I have to represent the Lord and communicate eternal thoughts with temporal minds. And I have to explain the Lord. And, and he makes my job very difficult at times where I don't know how to explain him. I walk into a house as a sheriff's chaplain. A woman gives me her dead baby and says, bring it back to life. And I don't feel the authority from the Lord nor the power of the Lord to pray. I don't have the faith to pray. I don't have anything in me to bring that child back to life, nor a confidence or a confirmation from God. And I just feel like, why did you do this to me? And there are times where I, I, I don't understand why the, the life of a little child is taken. I don't understand why there's cancer. I don't understand why there's sickness. I don't understand why there's divorce. I don't understand. I don't understand why people can't reconcile. I understand why people can't apologize. I understand how we can get to a place where we're so divided, so caustic, that that we're destroying one another and devouring one another with our words. I don't understand. And, And oftentimes you stand for the Lord and it seems as though everyone is moved by every wind of doctrine as reeds are just being blown in the wind and God is telling you just to stand firm while everything around you is just blowing. And it's almost as though everyone doesn't even care the fact that you're standing upon something and you're standing firm, that you're almost irrelevant in a sea of, of, of just moved by every wind of doctrine humanity. 
And what's the latest craze? What's the latest outfit? What's the latest anything? What's the latest series on television? What's the most viral thing on the vile thing on the internet? What, what is it? And we're moved by it. And yet God tells us to stand firm in the midst of it. And, and oftentimes you just think, I'm making no difference. I'm having no impact. And it's those times where you question, is what I'm doing really worth doing? And maybe, maybe, like I said earlier, this is just a sermon for me. Maybe none of you feel that way because you're not nodding and you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> but the reality is we've all found ourselves in that place, whether we admit it or not. And here, John the Baptist is in prison. He was put in prison by Herod. He was put in prison by Herod. Spurgeon writes, blessed is he who can be left in prison, can be silenced in his testimony, can seem to be deserted of his Lord, and yet can shut out every doubt. John speedily regained this blessedness and fully recovered his serenity. Another author writes, John's arrest was mentioned in Matthew 4.12. The full story of his imprisonment will wait until Matthew 14, and we'll get to that. But Herod Antipas of Galilee had paid a visit to his brother in Rome. And while he was there, he seduced his brother's wife. He came home again and he dismissed his current wife. And then he married his sister-in-law whom he had lured away from her husband. And publicly and sternly, John the Baptist rebuked Herod in the public civic arena. He actually called an elected official or a publican or, you know, a government official to account morally. And he was put in prison for it. And uh, John was irritated. He actually, or excuse me, Herod was irritated. He actually put him in the prison of Machaerus, which is in the mountains of the Dead Sea. It, it, it's an oven. He just basically put him into an oven to cook. The Dead Sea is, is one of the hottest places on earth. It's also at the lowest point on the face of the earth. And, and he left him there. And John was familiar. And it was actually cruel because John was an Essene and he, his his parents were older, Elizabeth and, and Zacchaeus and uh, Zachariah, excuse me, Zachariah and Elizabeth were his parents and they were older and it was a miracle that they'd had him and they were dead long before he was probably in his teens and he had joined this Essene group and they were out in the wilderness, out by the Dead Sea. They lived in these caves near Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It could quite possibly be that as that shepherd boy in the 40s had thrown the stone into the cave to try to get the, the goat out of the cave and he heard a, a, a breaking pot and he went in and found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are now the oldest uh, copies of the scriptures we have and are still completely accurate to what we hold today in the scriptures we have. Fascinating, by the way. Preserved in the place uh, of antiquity that nothing else could be better preserved, protected by multiple la layers of atmosphere so that nothing can destroy them. You can be in the Dead Sea. It'll be 110 degrees. Sun is completely out. You, you can be absolutely white and laying out and not get, sun get sunburned because the atmosphere is protected or the, 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 you're protected from the rays of the sun by the multiple layers of atmosphere. It's a fascinating place. You go there for skin ailments because the heat and the, the light destroys the skin ailments, but doesn't burn the skin. And here these, these scrolls were kept for thousands of years. And now they're in the, the museum uh, in, in Jerusalem. And, and there's a chance John the Baptist had read these these were probably the scriptures he had studied. He had read Isaiah 35. He had read Isaiah 61. He knew about every one of these prophecies that Jesus spoke of, that the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised up, the poor would have the gospel preached to him. 
And, and Jesus says, remind John again of these things. And while he's in this prison, uh, a Macarius in the Dead Sea, he's languishing. And, it, and it's torture to him because his whole life he's been in the open sky. And at night in the Dead Sea, when you look up, it's the canopy of stars is fascinating and brilliant. And, and he was familiar with the desert regions, but now he's kept in a prison. And this prison was vile. No running water. You lived in your own excrement. It's, it, most people died from, from the fumes. It was disgusting. And you would only survive if people brought you food. He's got a couple of disciples remaining, and it was there in the wilderness that he baptized Jesus. And he says, I'm not, I'm not called to even loose your sandals. And Jesus said, let all righteousness be fulfilled. Baptize me. And when, when he baptizes him, it says, that the heavens opened and the spirit of the Lord descended like a dove and said, this is my son in whom I'm pleased, whom I'm well pleased. And following that baptism, Jesus was driven into the wilderness, tempted for 40 days, was without sin. And then he started his public ministry. And, and, and the, the, the apostle John said uh, of John the Baptist, John quoted, I must decrease, but Christ must increase. And what he was saying is my ministry is going to start to wind down and his is going to wrap up a ramp up, excuse me. And, and so John knew that he was passing from the scene. He was Elijah. He made straight the way of the Lord. He did a baptism of repentance, turn and embrace God. And now the lamb of God is, as John looked at him out in the wilderness where he's baptized, he said, behold the lamb of God. And he declares Jesus. He baptizes Jesus. He knows. And Jesus is actually his cousin. Elizabeth was related to Mary and the, and, and they were born about the same time. And, and when the two women came into contact with each other, one of John leapt in the womb. Uh, and, and this declaration. And so you just see this connection between the two. They're related. And, and John sees it. And he's moved by it. And he's touched. And as his ministry starts to wind down and Jesus starts to ramp up, John calls Herod out. He says, you, you've married your, your sister-in-law. And, and you've committed adultery. And, and he puts him in prison. Who are you to tell the king what he's allowed to do? Civic disobedience. And as he's put in prison, um, Herod's new wife has a daughter named Salome. We know this by Josephus. And Salome was a seductive teenager, and she does this dance in front of Herod when he's drunk and having a party. And, and in the intoxication, he's just getting moved by this stepdaughter, just sick. He just says, anything you want up to half my kingdom. And Salome whispers into her mother's ear and her mother whispers into Salome's ear. And Salome turns to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter with some French fries. I added that. (laughs) And actually Herod followed through with it. He had horrible dreams about what he had done. But while John's in prison baking and dying, and the fumes, and he'd actually spent more time in prison than he had in a public ministry. He is languishing in prison. And in the midst of all of this, he's crying out, and he tells his two disciples, I'm having a crisis of faith. Could you please go and ask my cousin if he is the coming one, or do we look for another? Because this This is not what I expected. I have read the scriptures. I read the scriptures. I've gone through Isaiah 35. I've gone through Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I'm in prison. And this doesn't make any sense. He's not living up to the expectations I had. 
And I got to tell you, I've been a Christian for a number of years and God doesn't live up to my expectations. Sometimes. I will say he far exceeds them at others. But there are times where I'm thinking, are you, are you asleep at the wheel? Because if I was God, I wouldn't be doing it this way. I can think of a lot of easier ways to do this. And you're making this very difficult. It's like the Lord's going, oh God, uh, oh me. <laughs> and he's so patient with me. And, and I know because I'm contending with two teenage boys. And there are days where I want to drop kick them. <laughs> I never have, I never will. But I'm being candid. And if you've never felt that, you've never had teenage boys. <laughs> and you look at them and you're just thinking, God, grant me patience. Because their ignorance and stupidity is unbelievable. <laughs> and their pride. And you're just trying to get through to them. And then you watch as the Lord does what you can't do and their hearts are softened and they're moved and you watch them grow and they start. And he's so much better at it than I am. And he's teaching me how to be a father by the way he's fathering me. And I think about all the times he's put up with me, but he hasn't put up with me. He loves me. He just loves guiding and directing it. And he gives me that heart for my boys that I don't get exasperated or overwhelmed. In times where I'm angry, I go for a drive and I come back, my heart's settled. The anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. In your anger, do not sin. It's real simple. Here's how you don't sin in your anger. Just don't open your mouth. Go for a drive until your heart is settled and then come back. And, And that's what he does. And he's so good to me and he's so good to my family. And as I, I see these things, I'm touched. And, and, and John's struggling. He's struggling because he knows the text. He studied them his whole life. He knows of the messianic prophecies. He knows that Christ is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And yet, here he is languishing in prison, and he sends his two disciples to, G- to Jesus. He's probably only got two left. He sends the last two faithfuls. Everybody's, you know, being, you know, siphoned off over to Jesus's ministry. And John is sitting in prison longer than he had a public ministry. And he's just thinking, so this is what you get for serving God. And he's saying, God, deliver me according to your word, Isaiah 61, that you are going to proclaim liberty to the captives and that you're going to open the prisons and let free those who are bound. Lord, please, uh, it's time. The Messiah's come. Help me. Set me free. Deliver me. He's crying out to the Lord. Nothing's changing. The stench is still bad. He hears rumor about Salome. He's thinking the clock is ticking. I don't have a lot of time. Go and ask him because this isn't making sense. Ask him if he is the coming one or do we look for another because this isn't making any sense. And as they approach Jesus, Jesus says to the disciples, John's disciples, go and tell John again. Remind him again of what he already knows. Go and tell John again the things which you hear and see. Not just hearing, but seeing. You can testify to this. The blind see, the lame walk, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What does he leave out? Yeah, what about the part about setting the captives free? Hello? McFly? For you younger kids, it's back to the future. (laughs) He leaves that out because Jesus knows he's not getting out of prison. 
But he does add this at the end of the list of all these things, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached them, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. He adds this at the end. He says, and blessed, oh, how happy is he who is not offended because of me. And the word offended is, is um, the, the Greek word where we get s- the word scandal. Oh, bless you. Cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Thanks, Captain. If you ever want to go deep sea fishing, go with that guy in San Diego. I've never been, but I hear he's good. Oh, that's good. So he says, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And the word offended in the Greek is, is where we get the word scandal, scandalon. Scandalon is a cool word in the Greek. It's, it's the stick that, that you, you set the trap for, a, for an animal to capture. And it's a stick that holds the bait. And so when they nibble on the bait, they're, they're trapped. And blessed is he who doesn't take the bait. Blessed is he who's not offended and gets trapped by, by the doubt and the worry and the fear and, and you know, everything that John's dealing with. Are, are, are you going to be offended because I'm not marching to your orders, that I'm not, you're playing the flute and I'm not dancing, that I'm not doing it the way you want to do it? Are, am I Lord? Are you going to trust how I'm going to captain this ship? Wink, wink. Are, are you going to do that, right? Or are you going to take the bait and be trapped in this scandal, this offense? Are you going to be offended by the Lord? Are you going to quit because he's not playing by your rules? John, you're in prison. I, I specifically didn't add that because there's something coming that I, I imagine wasn't part of your anticipation of what you thought this was all going to be and your expectation of how it's going to end. And I just want you to know, don't take the bait, stay faithful. Well, if you follow the, the course of the story, the disciples of John never made it back in time. If we look at the chronology of it, they never made it back in time. John's down in the prison crying out to God. If there was ever a time in the history of the world that God could come visit me, he is my cousin. He's in the flesh. He's on the earth. He's only a short distance away. What would it, I mean, the God of the universe, couldn't he walk a little bit over and go, I am the Messiah. Everything's going to be okay, John. But no, 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 no. I'm in this dump in the Macarius prison out in the oven of the Dead Sea and I'm living in excrement and I'm crying out and all I'm hearing are my words bouncing off the walls. Where are you? And he's crying out to God and he hears footsteps coming down into the bowels of the dungeon and he's thinking it's either the disciples with Jesus or it's the Roman guards and he sees the guards, these centurions, they manhandle him, they grab him, his chains, drag him up, They bring him into the quad. There's the stump. They force his head down on the stump. He is just disillusioned. The ax comes up and wham. And as the head is severed from the body and and nothing is holding back the air in the lungs, just And his life is ended on this earth and he exhales his last breath on the earth and then inhales his first breath in heaven. And he goes, what was I thinking? You've always had this. You intended this as a testimony. God, you're so good. And all of a sudden it makes sense. The Bible says that absent from the body, present with the Lord, and, and all things will be made known in heaven. And right away, he just, he, it draws him to April 2017, right here, God speak. And he says, I see it. My life is a testimony for all who would be present today. All who would be under the pile. All who would be doubting and struggling and questioning. And if there isn't anyone who's ever doubted their faith, then, then I have news for you. You don't have a faith. 
A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. And Christians, you know, and, I, and it's been ruined now because of our culture, but I always say Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. And, and that's, that's kind of the truth. And we're tested. And it's in those times of trial that we see God faithful, and there is a pony there. We've got to keep digging. And, and in the midst of this, they depart, and as they leave earshot, and they're on their way that they never made it in time to John the Baptist, as they leave, only then does Jesus then turn to the multitudes, turn to the crowds. The disciples are gone. They don't hear this. John never heard these words. And, and he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Everyone being moved by every wind of doctrine? Not John. He's standing firm. Just He's not moved by the things of this world. He is, he's, he, he, he is, he's a rock in a whirlpool where everybody is just cast about by every wind of doctrine. There's no absolutes. Everything is subjective. And John is saying there is, and there's a God in heaven, and there is, there's good, and there's evil, and there's right, and there's wrong, and there's absolutes, and it's not subjective. God's law, he's the moral lawgiver. This is, and he's standing, and he's, 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 he's challenging government, and he's, he's standing firm, and it's costing him something. And he's so convinced that he's standing firm in prison for his convictions, and all he would have to do is just change him and he'd get out. But he didn't. He stood firm. As everyone is being blown about by every wind of doctrine, he says, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? John was wearing camel hair, not like the camel hair blazers. This was like wearing burlap. And he ate locusts and honey. He was like Jim, the taxi driver. Hey, just a weird guy. Just crunching these things and a spoonful of honey. Just, he had him in his beard and everything, you know, legs and stuff. And that's just <laughs> the picture I have. That's how I think. He says, if you want to see soft clothing, you go into the palaces of kings. What did you go out to see? A prophet? And then Jesus says, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for he is the one to whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And what he was saying is, he's a prophet of this entire lineage of prophets in the Old Testament who will have died before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. All of these prophets were pointing, to a, pointing forward to a point of time in history that they would never see, trusting by faith a point in history that they would never see, putting their faith in a God that would be crucified and resurrected, who would pay the penalty for the sins of all the world. They were pointing to that in their lives, something that never happened. It's like Noah building an ark where there's no water and people are looking, are you nuts? And as they're pointing to this place in time, that's John, because he would die before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So he's an Old Testament prophet. And he stands firm in a world of subjective morals. He's standing upon the lawgiver's command. And he's testifying of Christ and calling for a baptism of repentance, change. We have been running from God. Now it's time to restore our relationship with our creator. We've rejected him. We say he doesn't exist. We've created all kinds of fanciful ideas, and we've done this. And that's where we are today. We're similar to where John was. The, the, the room's probably divided. There's probably folks in the room right now, I, I, God doesn't exist. I don't believe in him. And where you're sitting, if you're believing that, I have news for you. I sat in your seat. And, and I'll tell you what, what rocked me was the simple fact of I, if I was going to be true to my atheistic beliefs, I could not use the word good, and I couldn't use the word evil. 
I couldn't use the word right and I couldn't use the, use the word wrong because if all we are is naturalists and we're, we dance by our own DNA and there's no order and there's no God and there's no designer and there's no creator, then there's no lawgiver. And if there's no lawgiver, then there's no right and there's no wrong and it is subjective. And, and that is a survival of the fittest. And, and I, would, I, I would turn to people oftentimes, I'd say, okay, and, and I saw this and it was fascinating and, and I've employed it. You look at somebody and you say, then, then if we believe in survival of the fittest, and this, this, is, this is our evolutionary mind and there is no God and we are cosmic accidents and this is just all there is, then really, can you say with, with a definitive c- c- uh, commitment that rape is wrong, that it's evil? And if you're going to be true, you can't say that. Because if it's survival of the fittest, wouldn't you want your DNA to survive? Yes, sick, isn't it? But that's honest. What governs you? You can't steal from my worldview to justify your own. If you're a naturalist, you can't go into the metaphysical. There's no right and wrong for you. There's no good and there's no evil. That's subjective. You're making your own rules. You're your own God. And then somebody like Christ comes on the scene that rocked my world who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's exclusive, I and no other. And he declares himself to be the truth. And now you're going, wait a minute. This is religious fundamentalism. It is. But if you take the fundamentalism to, to, to where it's supposed to go and you take it at face value, it doesn't call us to go bomb or blow up or kill. It's a totally different gospel. Salvation by grace, love your enemies, do good to those who spitefully use you. I mean, this, this is the call of Christ. Unlike anything else on the face of the earth, every other religion is man trying to get to God by do's and don'ts. Uh, Christianity is God coming to man and forgiving and, and, and setting the record straight and, and having a relationship of love and having a father and a son and this familial connection. It's fascinating. In its beautiful position, it is, it's amazing. But in the trials of life, we get, we get scandalized. We get, we get trapped up. We get to this place where, where we're offended. Because when you stand upon a truth, people reject you. And that's hard. C.S. Lewis wrote, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What I was comparing this universe with when I called it unjust, I do not know. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. In a closed system, and and we, we bank on this in our food industry, in a closed system, Life can only enter when you introduce it. So when you open up a jar of peanut butter, you don't want mold. We, it's a dead system. We've taken out all life forms. So if there's no life, it has to be introduced. Our food industry is based on that. And you say, well, where did life come from? Who, who put it into, it, where did it begin? There's got to be a starting point. There's got to be a designer. Well, I've never seen God. There's no, and we've gone through this. I've never seen the builder or the designer of this building, but it screams of a designer. 
The sun rises, the sun sets. We're held on nothing in space. 5% closer, we'd burn to death. 5% further away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. There's four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. We see the birth of a child. Every cell is intricate. The DNA, the winding of it, the, it's ordered. Just because you don't want to submit to the God of the universe because you want to live by your own rules and you don't like someone telling you what to do like Herod didn't like what John did, you, you, you dismiss. And, and, and to me, I, I struggled with that. I don't know about you if you're an atheist. I struggled with it. When I was taking an honest look at my life, I struggled with it. When you get to a place like this and you use the word evil or good and you're an atheist, you're stealing from God. You can't use the word evil. You have no lawgiver. You have no authority. You must know evil does not exist in the view of of your world. A naturalist is allowed to say he doesn't like something, but he can't say it's good or evil. It would be stealing. Ravi Zacharias puts it this way. When you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit it a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. That was hard for me when I was being honest in my unbelief of God. And I like, here's John standing firm and everyone's being cast about by every wind of doctrine. What's hip? What's cool? What's in? And, and you're whistling by the graveyard and you think you got forever to live and you've come up with your fanciful philosophies of life and you've taken a little bit from here, a little bit of there and you just made a little potpourri of happiness and, and you're just, and, and yet the clock's ticking. And if you're honest, honest, and you evaluate, you go, there's, there's some holes in this. And, and to be offended, to be taken by the bait when someone's angry with you, to be trapped, this scandal, to be offended. I think about this. Like John, if you stand upon right and wrong and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it's going to create conflict. Truth will never be tolerant of a lie, and a lie will never be tolerant of the truth. If you declare Christ to be true, you're, you're, there's going to be conflict. It's that simple. It can be civil, and you want to you know, argue your best case, and you don't have to be mean to each other, but even that moral basis of civility is based on the side of the believer in God because we see a moral foundation. Not over here. You can be as brutal and cruel as you want. And, and, and these winds of doctrine, they believe everything is relative. Oh, this is good. No, this is good. And it's all good. And you're just blowing, everything's relative. They believe sin is subjective. Oh, well, that might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Well, what's God's word say? They believe that religion is just a way for churches to separate people from their cash. Church is good at that, no doubt. They're really good at it. There's no bigger stick to hit someone over the head with than God. And you can milk people, but you've never seen an offering bag passed here. I've never asked you for a dime. So that, that excuse is out the window. If you're visiting, I don't ever want you to give. Keep your money. Matter of fact, if you attend here, 
Don't give unless God's moved you to give. And I'm not going to preach because we're tied on money. I'll teach what the next portion of the text teaches. Ravi Zacharias writes, philosophically, you can't believe anything. Oh, excuse me. Philosophically, you can believe anything so long as you do not claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you do not claim that it is better. It is a better way. Religiously, you can hold to anything so long as you do not bring Jesus Christ into it. All religions, plainly and simply, cannot be true. One has to be true, one has to be a lie. You have to test that. And here is where John is not offended. He's not taking the bait. He's standing firm. And and I'm blessed by this man. You see, this passage ministered to me deeply. And I'm almost finished. I'll just share this with you. I debated whether or not to read it, but I'm... I feel like the Lord said, yes, I received this letter, not this week, but last. And as I read it, I want to share with you, Abraham Lincoln would receive correspondence that were brutal and mean. And at the Lincoln library, the curator of the Lincoln library, you can see all the letters that Lincoln wrote that he didn't sign and send. And you contrast them with the ones that he did sign and send. And the pile is significantly different. But contrasting the ones that he did sign and send with ones he was thinking of sending, it's a whole different deal. Because when he'd be offended, he would emote on a piece of paper and just light them up. And, and then he'd go, no, and he'd put that down. And he'd sit on it until his heart would change. Remember, in your anger, do not sin. You just don't open your mouth. You know, an offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And Lincoln would wait until his heart was softened. And then he'd write a letter and the recipient would be touched. That's how he surrounded himself on his cabinet, um, uh, you know, with, with all, of, all of his enemies. And they ended up loving him when he died. A Team of Rivals was the book. I got a letter and you'll see when I read it, your initial reaction would probably be the same as mine. Here it goes. Hello, I don't even know what to say exactly other than to voice my strong disapproval of you and everything you stand for. It's a good start. (laughs) I just read the April 13th article, Acorn article, and I'm saddened to see that Thousand Oaks has elected such a far-right religious person to the city council. I absolutely 100% oppose religion and government. Religion, especially Christian evangelical religion, is in my opinion as evil and destructive as any other religious extremism. I personally believe religion is the single biggest factor in all the world conflicts. We face huge challenges today because of religious hypocrisy and idiocy. In case you didn't realize or care for that matter, which I'm certain you do not. Never met him. I don't know how I came up with that. The Conejo School District is facing a huge reduction in student enrollment over the next few years, partly due to affordable housing shortages and partly due to charter schools, religious charter schools, so sad. The Republican agenda to destroy our glorious public school system appears to be winning. What a sad day for America. I personally will fight against the spread of your corrupt, evil brainwashing of our children under the guise of patriotism and serving, quotation, lowercase g, asterisk, lowercase d. And he puts in parentheses, I refuse to say the word or even write it. And righteousness or whatever other nonsense you small-minded head-in-the-sand people believe. And by the way, the earth is 4.5 billion years old and the universe is 14 billion years old. Dinosaurs are real and so is evolution. Science will win. It always does. Sorry, buddy. Wait, the best part's coming. 
I will fight against any re-election ideas you may have in the future. I will rally friends, relatives, neighbors, anyone who will listen. I will donate endlessly to freedom from religion causes. I will support any and all candidates in Thousand Oaks that do not advocate for religious takeover of schools and our American way of life. Republicans, religious Republicans, are the most hypocritical, misinformed, ignorant group of people ever. I'm truly saddened by your lack of understanding, your inability to grasp even the most basic of science concepts regarding just about everything that matters to us on this planet. So basically I'm saying you can take your idiotic concepts of lowercase g, asterisk, lowercase d, public school, human rights denial, climate change denial, science, equality for women and others, and shove it, kiss my, and then he concluded. And I read that, and I going through, well, you can't use the word evil because... You don't believe in lowercase g, asterisk, lowercase d. And you can't say I'm immoral. You don't have a foundation. That's a metaphysical. You're stealing from my worldview. To, and I'm formulating this letter and I'm going. And I've literally, this, I've read this 60 times. And I was upset until the 59th reading. <laughs> and I didn't take the bait. People are not the enemy. They're the opportunity. I would not respond to this this man until God gave me a love for him. And I asked the Lord, show me. And he says, he's laid it out. These are all the things he's struggling with. Was it that long ago that you weren't in his shoes? And I'm like, yeah. And I had anger and I was bitter and I blamed other people and yeah. And he said, do you see yourself? I go, do. And I'm patient with you. You are. And I love him. Yeah, I know. Will you? Yeah, I will. I don't like it, but I will. (laughs) And this is what I sent. Dear, thank you for your letter. To take the time to write, regardless of the tone or subject, is always thoughtful. If I was the person you described in your letter, I would feel the same way as you. He's probably calling now. He doesn't like me. (laughs) If I was the person you described in your letter, I would feel the same way as you. You'd be surprised to know we have more in common than you might be led to believe. I would welcome the chance to get to know you over a cup of coffee. I have no desire to persuade you or stave off your commitment to remove me from office. I just think we would both be pleasantly surprised by the individual we would meet in person. Any chance? Thanks again, Rob McCoy. Clap all you want. I wasn't very successful. (laughs) But I do know I have a heart for that man. And um, don't take the bait. Don't be bitter. Don't doubt. Don't question. This is a work in progress. And and in this, I, I struggle. It's a fallen world. I don't know why this had to come in a week where we had all the stuff hitting. I don't know why everything was dumping all at one shot. I didn't get it all. God, that wasn't my expectation of this last couple of weeks. I wasn't expecting my 27th anniversary to be like that. And I don't think Michelle was either. But you know what? Yesterday was a big breakthrough. And like John, when he took his first breath in heaven, it's like, you know, Lord, this is a cool looking pony. Keep digging. People are worth it. 
Don't be offended. Don't take the bait. Love on them. Stand firm in a sea of reeds that are bent by every wind of doctrine and don't be moved. And love them because that's what blesses the Lord. And just go back to my friend with the keys. God has a heart to restore that man to himself. That's his son. I don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want my anger to get in the way of that. Let the Lord use you. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for such a wonderful picture of John the Baptist. And a man who struggled. And the thing I I so love, Lord, about your word is that he wasn't Superman. He wasn't Iron Man. Your word says in John 1, he was a man. He was a man. He was a man who struggled like all of us. And here, Lord, we have the, the point in time of the crucifixion and we can see the empty tomb and we can rejoice that Christ has died and we have a relationship with you that we can access the Father by a simple prayer and that relationship with a father and a son, a creator and a creature can be restored just by a simple conversation between the two. And John didn't have that, but he testified that that was coming. And he stood firm in a world that just was bending with every wind of doctrine. And because of his life and his testimony, as tough as it was, here we are today being blessed by his life. And God... We're okay with the trials and the struggles and we'll find ourselves in that room and we'll just keep digging because Lord, you always provide a pony. And so Lord, please bless your people. Let them be encouraged today. This trial is temporary, but what you're going to do through this trial to bless so many is going to be eternal. Give them patience, give them joy, give them strength, give them optimism that they can remember again your word tell John again. And Lord, when we go into those trials, we just go back to your word. We know you're faithful. We can stand upon that. Lord, for those who find themselves maybe even penning a letter like was sent to me this week, and they're struggling and they're raging against the idea of a God. Lord, I just think of that, that comment. If you don't believe in absolutes, do you believe that absolutely? And right there, that worldview breaks down. There is a God in heaven, and he loves us. He's not capricious. He's not mean. He's a father. He's a father who restores even what earthly dads destroyed. And he's good. And he loves you. And you may not believe in him, but he believes in you. And he's crying out to you. He loves you, and he wants you to come home. And so, Spirit of living God, move upon their heart to know this and to receive it by faith. Thank you, Lord, for the work you've done this day. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the prayer team up because there's something special when you're going through a trial to be able to pray with someone. I got to the place with that letter to be able to write what I wrote because men in the Friday morning study prayed with me and encouraged me. We're not to do this alone. We've been created for relationship. Come and share and pray over these things and and take these folks up on it and they'll pray with you. And what you pray with them, they keep to themselves. And if they don't, we kick them out of the church forever. (laughs) But may the Lord minister to you this week. Keep digging, find that pony. May God bless you. Amen.